Good morning, friends. My name is Steve, and I'm here today with the Malazan group, <laughs> the group we were doing for Malazan. Today we'll be discussing Memories of Ice. It will be spoiler-filled, so if you haven't read the book, please uh, click away and don't spoil yourself. Don't rob yourself of the experience, because we'll be getting into the, the nitty-gritty of book three. So, uh, Layla, you want to kick us off and introduce yourself? Tell us about uh, you and what you do. Sure. Um, <clears throat> my name is Layla Goshi. Um, I'm an English professor, uh, writer, and um, very enthusiastic reader of Malazan, Book of the Fallen. Uh, uh, my name is Joseph Carroll. I'm an author. I write under the pen name J.R. Carroll. Um, I also have a uh, booktube channel just recently started up. And uh, so love uh love discussing books with people so this is uh this is right up my alley here awesome uh so i'm philip chase i also have a booktube channel and i like layla am an english professor i am a medievalist in my day job and a fantasy fan all the time so <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be here uh, with you guys talking about my favorite series of all time Oh, I didn't know this was your favorite. I mean, I, you obviously are very enthusiastic about it, but I didn't know it was your favorite. Yep. Um, I'm Stacy from Stacy's All Booked, um, a YouTube channel with no content. <laughs> um, I am a also an avid reader and a big fan of BookTube. And so many of you I've um, met before I became a YouTube. And um, Philip, I've been following your channel for a long time. So I just never watched your Malazan videos because I thought that's never going to be a book that I'll read. It's oh. just everybody says it's so complicated, so epic. No, thank you. Military fantasy in some in uh, some cases. But I'm super excited to talk about book three today, which I read and loved. <laughs> okay. yeah. So before we get started, I want to I want to just give a huge thanks to all of you. <laughs> Uh, because without the, these discussions, I would—I <laughs> don't know—I don't know if I would—I'd be totally lost. So, thanks to all of you for coming along the journey. It's been just a great, uh, great experience. So, uh, this one was was kind of tough. After I, lots of characters. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't uh, think it could get more complicated. I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> What were your thoughts on that, Stacey? There was something you you uh, you posted on the forum that I did not even until I read your comment that you noticed. I think it was in the in the prologue, right? That I did not yeah. notice at all until your comment. So, do you want to tell us about that? So, I had to read the prologue twice because I thought I picked up on some hints about the three elder gods that stopped Kalor in the beginning, and he had cursed them as they had cursed him. And so, I know we had met Krull <clears throat> in Gardens of the Moon. So it made me wonder if we had ever seen the other two gods, just didn't know who they were. And so I went back and reread it to see if I noticed anything. And I re I kind of figured out that Draconis was, had to have been the maker of some weapon. And I thought maybe it was Dragnapore, but I wasn't sure. But it was um, Night Chill that I had kind of figured out was the sister of the cold or whatever, I think. Sister of Cold Knights, yeah. Six Sister of Cold Knights, because obviously the names, and I think Calor even says something 
uh, when he when he finds out that night who night chill was that he's like that's not a very inventive um name so I, that was when i was confirmed that night chill was um the sister of cold nights so that was really cool um, and to see how the other characters finally figured that out too throughout the book you know one of the things i love about reading mysteries is even if i figure it out is seeing how the characters figure out and to find out if i'm right um, so that the prologue was really cool for me. It was like, Ooh, am I right? And then 900 pages later, Oh yeah, I was <laughs> That's great. That's a great catch actually. Yeah. 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 I didn't catch that at all. And then I had to go back and reread it after that. And I, I was still, <laughs> I figured it out later, but that was the other, that was a great catch. Uh, for me, it's, it's been tough to keep track of all the characters and the names is what's been tough for me. So, yeah, so if they didn't have the persona dramatis thing at the beginning of these books, there's no way I would be able to keep up with all the characters. Yeah, the, it does. It does get easier with time, <laughs> but is it, it is a vast cast of characters for sure. Uh, and it's so cool, Stacy, that you picked up on all that in the prologue, because the prologues in any of these books in the Malazan book of the fallen are really important to pay attention to because mm -hmm. Erickson is signaling in the prologues. Here are some big themes that you should be looking for throughout the book. <clears throat> so for example, in the prologue, you see motherhood portrayed in a mm -hmm. very important way. And motherhood, as you all know, motherhood is extremely important important in this book in in several respects you have the mime principally but you also have other examples of mothers and you have the the jagged mother in the prologue uh you also have kalava playing a motherly role uh so that's it's just signaling here's a big theme look out for it um so uh i i've said this i think the last time we met but uh, AP Canavan on A Critical Dragon has these fantastic videos that are dedicated just to the prologues of each book where he goes through this. Okay, here's some interesting things. Here's some themes to look out for. Uh, so mm -hmm. I can't emphasize enough how helpful those videos are. If, uh, and he keeps them spoiler free for the rest of the book as well. So uh, they're, they're really helpful if you're just when you're starting out with uh, a Malazan book. Um, but yeah, so there's just, they're loaded. There's lots there. I think an important thing is don't feel like you have to catch everything as you're reading it, because that could be overwhelming. There's, there's a, just a lot there. And, um, I think it's more important to just go along with the experience, enjoy what you're, what you're catching. And then later have a discussion like this or listen to a video like this and, and think, oh, wow, that's cool. I didn't notice that. So, uh, but very cool. And yeah, so the, the prologues also, I just wanted one, one final word about the prologue. It takes place. And this is something that AP points out in his video. Uh, it takes place in this almost mythological time. I mean, it's like what 300,000 years ago and 100,000 years ago. And the, he gives a very precise date, but I think it's fair to say that uh, both Erickson and Esselmont as archaeologists take their jabs at history and our, our pretensions to complete accuracy in history. So take those things with a grain of salt. Uh, when these things, these stories are being told in mythological time, it's like reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. You know, there might be some kernel of historical truth there, but 
a lot of it is just made up over the years. And as the years go by, stories accumulate and they become uh, much more uh, in tune with what we expect from stories. In other words, they take on more mythological resonance. So and all, I'm tr- all I'm trying to say there is with some of these ancient events, uh, take them with a grain of salt uh, because you, you don't take everything as just literal truth as you're reading. You know, um, that um, fact that the uh, author, Erickson, um, is an archaeologist, you know, I found myself coming back to think about that, uh, you know, um, frequently as I read this because, you know, I imagine him working, you know, um, with the, you know, the artifacts that he has and in the locations that he has and and just really having these ideas bubble up, you know, like the Talana mass just rising from the dust. And yeah. um, that that gives me a real, um, I don't know, I just, I, even though it's not in the story, it's something that frames the story for me that um, I find really intriguing and inspiring and also kind of gives me an idea into um, I don't know whether these this is his beliefs, but the the um, the world building is built on it seems like the soul separate from materiality, you know. Um, just you know, for example, in this um, tatter sail and night chill and so on, moving into a new uh, created uh, entity. You know, and um, also uh, took the younger moving into an aster's body, you know, so it's like the soul transitions um, with, within different types of materials, you know, all rising from dust in the end. We're, we're all Talani mass in the end. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So, uh, yeah, I just really love that, that world building aspect of it, that thematic aspect. There's a lot of themes in in all of the three books about the spirit living on past the body. And it's really cool. I mean, you see it in almost every culture within Malazan. The the Wiccans in the last book. Um, you know the uh, what? Who was the character? I'm really bad with these names. Like I said, the character in the sticks with the acorn head in this book. Oh, the, uh, that's uh, the little fellow. <laughs> <laughs> Bargast. Yeah, um, um, that is. Well, I'm trying to look it up here. Uh, oh yeah, um, Talamandus. Talamandus. Yeah. Yeah. So oh. it's just really cool to see that. How yeah. and uh, when, when we get to the part with the Talana mass at the end, and um, I, I have some questions about that too, but I'm going to let Joseph talk. no but yeah that that seems to be a big theme through all the books uh but i feel like almost in particular he was hitting he was hitting that kind of hard here of where you know uh spirit is is more important almost more like more important than your physical body because you know people you know people move people ascend you know um it's never a hundred percent whether someone's actually actually dead or if they've entered, or if their spirit just entered a different realm. And, you know, 
multiple people can be in the same vessel, you know, inside the same body and all, you know, he has so many different, uh, you know, aspects of the spirit that he puts through this uh, series and makes it really interesting. And donate, uh, the theme of motherhood was really strong on this one uh, with Silver Fox and, um, you know, kind of <laughs> it, it was a little because the way that uh, it's almost like that she's draining um, the life out of. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it was a pretty, pretty powerful uh, theme there that and I, I did pick I did watch some of the discussion that you had to fill up with AP about that. And that was uh -huh. there was even more that I caught from that discussion. But it's, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty strong theme there. Yeah, it's interesting because we tend to idealize motherhood in our culture and we gloss over the sacrifices and the, the wear and tear and the aging and all of that. And I think any, any person who has given birth can tell you that it's not an easy process. Uh, mm -hmm. And then of course, being a mother is not an easy process and it involves daily sacrifice. Uh, so uh, it's an aspect of motherhood that I think, deserves exploration and, and attention. Uh, but I don't know how I'd, I'd be very curious to hear how that resonated with, with you other readers. You know, I, I was thinking <clears throat> something that, you know, there, there are bits of humor in a way, or maybe I'm just seeing things from a humorous side. Um, but Kreppa seems to be kind of a, a birth coach midwife, you know, yeah, doula. entire process, you yeah. know, and he keeps telling her, and, and I do think now I'm a little unclear on how things um, ended for the Maybe in, in this book. It seemed that he, Krupa was saying, just reach out and touch and, you know, touch the, you know, um, like Krupa is trying to get her out of her um, either self-imposed uh, mental state I mean, that's that's what's unclear. <clears throat> so here's here's how I read this uh, in in one um, in one way. It is what it is. Um, she birthed. Um, now I'm losing my train of thought. Silver um, Fox. Silver Fox. Thank you. <clears throat> she birthed Silver Fox and um, <clears throat> Silver Fox is draining her of her power. That's one way of looking at it. Um, Krupa, uh, helped, uh, you know, facilitate this. So he is there and, um, and then when, uh, the Maibi gets to her depressed state, I kind of read that in some ways as like, you know, um, sort of the, the depression women can fall into after birth, yep. you know, um, but then he's still coaching her, uh, to what I think is going to be a rebirth. So it's like Kruppa is coaching her through two births. The first one is the birth of Silver Fox, and the second one is the rebirth of her own spirit. But I'm not quite sure if we got there. So, and that might just be my reading of it and overlooking of, of how things turned out. Yeah. So those are my thoughts. And, and so the humorous side is that it's Kruppa, you know, that's involved in this whole thing. Or his his personality as we know it, you know. 
Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out in the context of what you just said, Layla, that uh, the word "mibe" means like oh a vessel, a vessel, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that it gives that there's an implication there of something that is being used. Uh, mm -hmm. Reminds me a lot of a poem by Sylvia Plath called "Metaphors," which is a, just a brilliant poem about pregnancy. Uh, mm -hmm. And the consistent theme running through all these metaphors is the feeling of being secondary, of being used, um, and being a, a vessel for this life that is growing inside you. Um, mm -hmm. So it's an incredibly important perspective, I think. Yeah. What were your thoughts on that, Stacy? Being a being a mother, did you? Uh... Um, <clears throat> in some ways, I can relate. I mean, I think as a mother. It's not so much, I mean, you feel, you feel tired and you feel exhausted all the time. Um, and so I can kind of relate with the feeling like your life is being drained. But I will also say that I felt younger having a child than I did before because mm -hmm. you, you kind of get to explore things that you didn't get to explore. I, for me, I had a, um, a troubled childhood, so I kind of got to you know, my son and I do a lot of things together and it's like I get a second mm -hmm. chance of, of being a kid myself. So I feel younger, um, but I do also understand what it's like. It's exhausting. Your, your life is totally turned upside down as a mom, not necessarily in a bad way. It's just completely different. Yeah. Your, your priorities are changed. You know, you're, um, you, you, if you're a married woman, you're now, you know, third in line. <laughs> for everything um because you put everybody else in front of yourself so yeah it's um it, i totally got that but there in this book it wasn't even just the my be it was just every aspect of motherhood in here was explored uh the crushing um you know motherhood of uh of the matron i mean there are mothers out there that are like that there mm -hmm. there are um you know even silver fox in the my be felt uh, the might be felt abandoned by silver fox their mothers go through that when their children grow up and and leave the house so i just i was amazed at how i, I don't know if any of you guys have seen or have read the sort of kaigan but that was the first book i read where you had a character who was a mother and a lot of motherhood aspects were dealt in there and it was the first time i'd read a, a fantasy book like that until this one and, and, but this one is so much different. It's darker <laughs> and um, it's so much different, but it does, it, it amazed me that a man had written that, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even, uh, I had to write the name down, Kilava, the way that mm -hmm. she cared for the kids, that was another form of motherhood there that she was caring for the children. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, and that's a character to pay attention to. Just I won't say more than that because we're not going beyond this book. But, yeah. uh, so, so to, I'm not sure if I try not to jump around too much. But speaking of talk, um, did I did I miss it or is is he cannibal now? <laughs> is that well? He's he ends up inhabiting uh, a cannibal's body. Right. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, he gets put through. Was a, a can a cannibal? Was that ever said oh, yes. for sure? 
very okay. much so. Yeah, yeah. He's one of the the children of the whatever, you know, he's part of the, the Dead Seed. Story. Yeah. Yeah, the Dead Seed. Uh, definitely. If we're talk, he gets put through the ringer, but at least he gets plenty of hugs in this book. <laughs> <laughs> Soul crushing, bone crushing hugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember as, during Gardens of the Moon, someone mentioned that they were uh, so sad or I, I'm not sure, Stacy, if it was you, but someone mentioned that they were sorry to see talk, um, you know, disappear from the theme, from the scene, you know, into the wormhole and maybe gone or wherever. Um, but he has had such a journey since then. And um, I can tell we're only halfway through, but... <laughs> Um, I just, um, you know, uh, I wonder, I guess I wonder where, where it will lead now, because Anaster, if I understand, has he been, I guess, redeemed since he has died? And Nikovian was saying he would save him. And then, or is Tok taking up the is he sharing a spirit with Anaster? I guess that's what I'm asking. Uh, those are hugely important questions and something that Erickson is exploring not only here, but throughout the series is the nature of redemption. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it is, uh, it's an open question, I, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I would I would say that that is a, <laughs> something that, uh, <laughs> poor Tom, yeah. <laughs> I would say that's something that every reader has to decide for themselves uh, in, a, in a sense. And I don't mean that as a cop-out. I, I think it's, um, it's an, it's, it's not something I think that he wants to give an answer to necessarily. I think he wants mm -hmm. us to ask the questions that you just asked mm -hmm. and to, to, de to decide on our own um, or maybe not decide or, but at least think about it. Um, and I mean, just look at the seer, the Panion mm -hmm. seer. Uh, is it even possible for him to be redeemed after running a <laughs> the the Panion Domen uh, in such a way? It's just yeah, I can't even begin to describe the horrors of having an army of cannibals and uh, basically taking over, trying to take over a continent like a cancer and being responsible not only for thousands and thousands of deaths but the untold misery. Um, and then at the end. We learned that he was the little boy, the jagged boy in the in the prologue, and that he was in a way a victim, uh, and that he is going to work toward uh, doing some good now that he has been um, put in his place, so to speak, at the end. But is it possible for him to be redeemed? Is it possible after doing all that? I mean, it, it's a question I'm not giving an answer to, but yeah. uh, that's a huge theme running throughout this. Yeah, I, I I definitely think that that is a big thing that uh, Erickson has put into put into these books because you know very few people or very few characters have you know haven't done something questionable throughout you know all, all the books so you know like Philip said it's like you're kind of leaving it up to the reader to decide you know do you think this person, you know, is redeemable because everybody's done something questionable, it seems like, throughout all the books? 
I mean, yeah, do I, you think that he could have been redeemed if you didn't know as a reader that his motivations were coming from an outside source? I mean, if you knew as a reader that these were his true thoughts and feelings and motivations and they were only his, could you forgive him? Or do you, as a reader, feel the the inkling of giving him his redemption because you know that he wouldn't have done it if it weren't for the crippled God? Yeah, uh, it's a great question again. And um, we have a question, uh, a point made by do unicorns read uh, Angela in the uh, chat there? So many victims. Uh, but there's this also this theme of misguided mercy. Uh, and Etkovian is one of the most fascinating characters to me in the entire series. Uh, and is this idea of him redeeming other people by taking on their pain like he does with this. I mean, just it's a powerful thing. You never forget yeah. this book is when he he uh, redeemed plan Amas, which is, uh, we have, I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had about whether they're redeemable in this relentless war against the Daggett um, and their willingness to sacrifice their humanity in order to persecute that war. Uh, I mean, wow, what a, what a statement. But Itkovian just takes on all that. And it, it is, don't get me wrong, it is the most, one of the most powerful scenes in the entire series. Uh, and also the aftermath when they're building that uh that tribute that mound of of relics oh, and, and gifts and just i mean if you're not crying during that scene i don't know <laughs> what you're made of but wow i mean it's just incredible um but peel away the layers and i think it's worth asking um is this is this right is is mm -hmm. uh is it possible for somebody to redeem someone else in this way um, is it possible for someone to exculpate other people from their, their guilt? Um, and uh, it, it, it brings up the difference between, um, I think, um, giving from outside somebody uh, a, a benediction versus someone redeeming themselves. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's an important theme that'll come up again for sure. And see, that, that is something that I wondered about Ikovian during that scene um, and during a, another scene, actually. But was he doing that um, for himself or for others? Like, did he feel this powerful need to do something to, you know, soothe all of this pain? And so was the pain coming from with him, within him that he had witnessed all of this. And so he was taking on the pain of others, you know, telling himself, I'm redeeming them. But he was also rebalancing something in himself. I mean, that's something I was trying to think of. And, and that um, I kind of saw that in the uh, Prince Jalarkin situation, which I, I kind of saw as another as kind of example of dark humor. I mean, you know, the prince hired the gray swords, you know, and um, he was pretty much left out of the conversation after that. And then, um, you know, in the midst of all of, you know, the mayhem, um, and Aster, you know, goes after the prince, skins him, you know, barbecues him. Uh, and then Ikovian comes back and sews him back together and puts him on the throne. And 
I saw that again as Ekovian trying to make things right. I think it even said something like, um, you know, uh, restoring the prince's honor or something. Um, and so, you know, it didn't quite put everything to right, but Ekovian was doing his best. I mean, using the same impulse. But I, you know, when I actually read that scene, I was just like, what? What happened here? You know, it's just so darkly absurd to me yeah. and that Jalarkin was just in this series of events he had no control over, you know, yet he was the, the ruler, you know. So. Well, it, I mean, it begs the question as to who was actually ruling him or the mass council. Right. Um, but I want to, I want to make a comment about what you said about, um, Ecovian. I think that he really suffered from survival's survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. um, I think that he was really punishing himself. He wasn't, maybe he was looking for redemption by redeeming others, but I think he was also trying to punish himself for being alive and seeing how far he could go. And he, you know, the way that he, after he redeemed the Talana mass and he said, I'm done. And then he just died. It's like, oh my God. I mean, Erickson does these buildups and, you know, every time he would redeem somebody, I'm not done yet. And redeems, I'm not done yet. And then I'm done. And then, and then you're like, okay, well, I can't really expect him to come back now. Can I? <laughs> <Just like, laughs> he told us he's done. Uh, but that a memory of ice, the last, chapter two chapters are the most powerful chapters that i've ever read emotionally in a fantasy i mean i had trouble seeing the pages through my tears um and that says a lot about what erickson does you've got scores of characters you're following and yet you still feel something for all of them to the point that when things happen you either you know are mourning them grieving them or you're happy that they're gone <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I, I just had to say that it's like, it may have been complicated to follow the book. It may have taken a long time before you could separate who's who, where they're at, what's happening. But by the end, you're, I mean, that, I just think that is incredible talent as a writer to be able to do that. Yeah. That's an interesting comment Eric is making uh, there from the book. Uh, the, the fact is, I think the original vision for the shield anvil was that it was something for the company, for the, uh, the gray swords. Uh, is that, that's their name, right? They're the gray swords. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, the fact of the matter is his application of uh, redeeming people outside of his own kind um, is something that is, I think unique to Ikovian that he, he broadens this role of his. And I think it has a lot to do with what Stacy, you were saying um, with his survivor's guilt, um, with his, uh, his desire to rid the world of pain um, because this is a world with lots of pain. Uh, <laughs> and both the Malazan world and of course our own. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, it, it is an extremely powerful and, and, compelling and something that I think we can all sort of feel uh, that, that in, in all that embodied in that character, in that frail body. Um, it's just such a, wow, an amazing idea really. <laughs> but, uh, and you can only do that in fantasy, you know? Yeah. 
I was interested at the end that Diker showed up to tell the story of Cotillion. So these two books, from what I understand, are uh, two books, meaning Dead House Gates and this book, uh, run parallel in time. Well, Duerker uh, shows up in the among the 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 the, the remnants of the bridge burners in Darugistan. Um, and that's a bit of a surprise to some people. Uh, if you didn't realize that in, in uh, the, the end of Deadhouse Gates, that he was in fact revived. Um, mm. And he is, talk about uh, survivor's guilt and PTSD. I mean, this right. is a guy who's really been through it in, in Deadhouse Gates. And so it's, it's really kind of a, um, that also is a scene that broke me. <laughs> mm. Duerker meeting the remnants of the bridge burners in Krull's bar um, and uh, saying, yeah, I got a story for you here. Uh, and it's, uh, it's just so, and, and you can see that they've got so much healing to do um, and that they, though they were on different campaigns, they're going through the same thing. Um, so it's, it's, it's also though, I think a, a moment of hope in that people who have been through these things can find consolation in one another. Um, through the bonds that they have through those experiences. So mm -hmm. as much as this is a tough, tough read um, and what happens with the bridge burners, uh, the annihilation of the bridge burners, uh, at the same time, I think that there are these hints of compassion and humanity and bonding that are, are very, very important to pay attention to. Yeah, I think um, a big you know, theme running through this uh, book is also, you know, friendship. Um, and I don't know if it's just like, you know, the way, you know, my childhood and whatnot, but I always gravitate more towards friendship than the familial uh, aspects of, of stories and stuff. And, uh, you know, Tool and, and Talk to Younger, I mean, that, that was my favorite part of the entire book is just watching them kind of, you know, become close and then, you know, tool, you know, going all out to try and save him. Well, how did you feel about the end when he goes to shake Anaster's hand and tool doesn't remember him? That yeah. was heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, that was rough. I actually didn't catch on that Tool didn't realize who he was until that moment. Like I thought that maybe he was just confused. I mean, the change was, you know, disorienting, but it wasn't until that moment because that was such a strong bond that him not remembering Tool, you know, or having a, a faint familiarity, but that's all um, that, that just broke my heart. That broke my heart. And it made me wonder, you know, how much of night chill, and um and oh my gosh i'm drawing a blank the other people that are inside silver fox are it's one tatter, tatter sale yeah. tatter sale yeah. yeah and belladon okay yeah yeah and we've we've talked a lot about erickson we've talked before in other streams about his combat his action scenes and his imagery but he's really great at dialogue too i think that's something that uh yeah. really um the dialogue whenever someone speaks you know it's it means something yeah yeah reading rainbow uh has a nice uh 
little comment there too, I think about Buke and it's, it's, it's a minor uh, storyline, but I think it's one that resonates with a lot of people. And of course you guys all picked up on that. Kiruli is actually Kroll, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, uh, the God. So, mm-hmm. um, but that path to redemption, it, it's a sad storyline when he, at the end goes away as a bird, you know, he's you get the feeling that he's not coming back to all this pain of being mm-hmm. a human being. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, there is a purity to it. I agree with reading Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually yeah. forgot about his storyline. I mean, okay. yeah, it's, it's, there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just when he brought that, I was like, oh, what happened to him? And then, oh yeah, that's right, he turned into a, a bird, and bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I could turn into a bird and fly far, far away. <laughs> <laughs> There are days, yeah. Yeah, right. I have a, a question um, about one particular um, situation. Um, the the issue of whether Whiskey Jack is still working for the Empress or not, because there was a scene where, um, uh, who was his, his Trista Andy love interest? Is it Kalat? Corlat. 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 And um, he, she, how can I put this? He doesn't reveal that maybe, if I understand this right, he doesn't reveal that he is still secretly working for the Empress. And um, at that moment, uh, you know, she kind of gives him this blank stare and he realizes that they all know, you know, that Kaladin Brood and you know, they all know um, that he's not on the outs with the Empress. He's still working for the Empire. So, you know, I guess I'm trying to understand the significance of that at this point. I can see how that puts him in a more dangerous position. Um, But is there any more anyone can say, I guess, without, or maybe we can tell us. You know what? That was a very powerful scene when, um, Anna Rape talks about maybe the Empire isn't as bad as we think. Maybe it is the best, um, better for the people than than what we can offer, you know, starvation and, mm-hmm. you know, all these things. Um, I really struggled with that. I don't know about you guys, but it's like you spent two books telling me, making me feel like the Empire is this horrible thing. And now you want me to... <laughs> to believe there, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I, I really had a hard time like wrapping my mind around that. And it made me question everything. And I, by the end of this book, I mean, when the empire actually gives, or I should say gives, but negotiates to give Carol to, is it Carol? Uh, the name of the town that they're, the big battle happens to oh, give coral. it to the coral. coral, to give it to the, um, uh, the test to Andy because they lost Moonspawn. I mean, there was like no arguing. It's like, you no, know, this is your, but you expect the empire to be like, no, this is ours. And so by the end of the book, I was just like, I, everything I believed in gardens of the moon and still struggled with and dead how now I can't, I don't even know what to believe anymore, but yeah. that what you're talking about there is, probably one of the more powerful scenes is because you're, that's exactly how I felt going into that. I was like, uh Oh, it's going to happen. And nothing I thought would happen did. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it was just that 
and Amanda Rake and, and Caledon Brood, they kind of saw the um, one one arms host as not their enemy anymore. I mean, they they've seen what they what their capabilities are. I mean, they they've been traveling with them and meeting with them, and I think they saw them to be more than just the faceless enemy that they had been before. And I think they started to question what their motives are. Like, what are we doing for the people? Um, you know, the, our only only reason why we're on opposite sides of the Empress is because she can't control us. But does that make what we're doing right better for the people? I, that was so incredibly confusing, but powerful. Yeah, it's complex. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, go ahead, Joseph. Uh, well, I was just going to say, um, I think with, uh, you know, Erickson and, you know, Malazan is different than any other fantasy book that I've read because you get everybody's perspective. <laughs> it's like, you know, and like Philip told us, you know, well, you know, I've watched some of the videos and he's like, you don't come into this thinking, all right, you're just going to have one point of view and it's going to be clear who the good guys and the bad guys are, you know, Erickson, you know, with these books being so big, he's able to just go everywhere. He's he's, it's almost like he's just giving you random looks at every place in the world and different sections and different people are doing different things. So you get to see both sides and nobody thinks they're the bad guy, you know? Mm -hmm. So while you're in their POV, they're not saying I'm the bad guy. They're just like, that's the bad guy. We're doing the right thing. We're doing this. So yeah, like Stacy said, it's like, it's like, who, who's the bad guys here? Who are we supposed to be looking at, yeah. you know, like side-eyeing, like, okay, that's not the people you want to, you want to side with, but you, you know, everyone thinks they're the good guys here. Yep. That's right. It's, it's, it's complex. And the relationship between the Malazans on the one hand and Kaladin Brood and Anna Mandarake and the Tyst. And D, on the other hand, this alliance they have, it's, they were just killing each other, right? They were, they were at war against each other very recently. It's analogous in some ways to World War II, where you had the United States and Great Britain allying with uh, Russia against the Nazis. So if you think of, uh, you know, the, the uh, Panion Domen as the Nazis, there's a common enemy here that we can... We can ally together, although we're not so easy with each other, but they're worse. So let's get rid of them. Um, and that's kind of what's happening here. Uh, with, and But the Malazans and uh, on the one part and then Kaladin Brood and, and uh, Anna Amanda Rake, they don't trust each other, really. It's a lot like at the end of World War II, where you had this rush on Germany. You had the Russians coming from the east and you had the allies coming from the west. And they knew what they were doing. They were eating up as much territory as they could to claim that power after the war because they, mm -hmm. this common enemy was about to be annihilated. And then they knew they're going to be staring at each other. Uh, and so that common enemy being gone, they might be enemies again. So they're trying to grab as much as they can, which is why the Malazans send in the bridge burners into Coral on their own in order to basically claim that for the Malazans, uh, which ends up in with the destruction, the sacrifice of, of the bridge burners. So it's, it's, I think it's a, somewhat analogous to, to that situation in World War II. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's a great analogy, actually. That's a great point. 
oh god that so that was one of the things that made me hate the empire again it's the fact that mm -hmm. you know whiskey jack and Jack were their the whole point was to to get ahead it's like wasn't the point of this to have uh you know another army to go in because you i mean you recognize that you could not take the panions here by yourself which is why you um or was it that they just wanted the the other armies to stop fighting them so that they could take on the pinions here. I don't know. But I was like, really, is this place that important to the empire that they had to sacrifice this whole, oh God, it made me so mad. And then they give it up anyway. So I was like, okay, well, maybe they're, <laughs> maybe the empire's not so, it's, it just was this roller coaster of emotions um, because you don't know. Um, because nobody is really the villain of their own story, as Joseph said, is, yep. um, and and Erickson makes puts you in the perspective of everyone, so you can't you see all their motivations, and except for the the few that have true evil intentions, um, they're they're all, you know, just who they are, and and maybe I don't know. It, so even the matron. I mean, you think, God, she's just crushing talk and, you know, how horrible, but she was just, she was truly screwed up. I mean, you didn't know until the end when you find out she was the soul that was stuck in the, in the rip before, yeah. um, in the rent before the children were sent through. Uh, but that also makes you think, you know, so how did the Panion Seer, who, who raised him? You know, was it the matron that raised him or was it the cripple God's influence? Mm -hmm. Either way, he never got to be himself. That's all awful. So, yeah, when you think about can he be redeemed knowing those facts? Absolutely, because he he was always a puppet to somebody else's will and not his own. And now he gets to be uncle to his sister. It's a wonderful ending, but it's mm -hmm. also frustrating because you're like, that guy did so many horrible things. Why am I letting him get away with it? Yep, that's right. That's very true. Beautifully yeah. said. It makes you think about, you know, um, are we shaped by external forces? I mean, there has to be a balance between external influences and our internal, um, you know, motivations. But what if you are in such a tight box? that your internal impulses can never flower, you know, can never uh, have any autonomy. So there, yeah, a lot of uh, complex thinking to do there. And I just want to go back to that scene with Whiskey Jack for a minute, because the complexity there was he was at risk politically and maybe personally, but then he was in this romantic relationship, which was partly doomed anyway because he's immortal and his, you know, his love interest is immortal. And I just love the way that scene was drawn. I just, so I think in, in both cases, um, you know, uh, each character situation, we just have to sit and reflect on in terms of what we believe, you know, morally or politically or ethically. Yeah. Very That's right. Cool. Yeah. Eric said, get used to that feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So, Steve, I have a question for you. You said that mm -hmm. you you had a harder time with this one, uh, with all the you know a lot more characters, um, a lot more plot lines here. Uh, Dead House Gates had more straightforward plot lines. There were a lot of side plots and everything in here. By the end of the book, do you feel like you got a satisfying understanding of what was happening? Or are you still confused? I'm confused. You know what I think? <laughs> but I think I where I went wrong is I I took a break from it. Cause I was, mm. I was reading it and I, about uh, a little over halfway, I, I was, I went to Denver for StalkerCon and I stopped. I didn't want to take the book with me cause I'm weird about my books being thrown everywhere. So I, I decided to leave it behind and I started reading other things and I listened to other audiobooks. And when I came back to it, I had a hard time kind of reconnecting with it and kind of catching all those different storylines. So I was a little, I think from here on out, I think once I start it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to touch anything else until I'm done with it that's so hard these of, are yeah. complex books to be yeah. able to yeah i, just, I agree to that much yeah. yeah i had to read one chapter a day because if i try and read more it's too much mm -hmm. so i know you you are not a big fan of reading more than one book at a time no um, i don't i i can do one <laughs> one uh, one read and one audiobook and that's kind of yeah. what so so i uh johanna actually brought up a good uh, idea for us is to meet mid book and, and you know like every maybe month month and a half and just so we can all kind of um connect and, and there's so many so much going on in these books that that might be beneficial to have like a mid book that way if we're a little lost we can help each other out instead of going through the whole book and not understanding something so that's something sure. we can talk about yeah that's not a bad idea yeah all the and, and do unicorns read says perspectives are flipping constantly in malaz and like a poem uh, about the ant in the rim of the uh, rim of the glass that turns out to be the rim of the spider's lip yes it's i think that's that's what is is all the different perspective changes that's what i had trouble coming back to it after a break for for a couple of weeks and i started it right after our last uh discussion so uh, thinking i could give myself enough time and i think that was actually a detriment instead of a <laughs> instead of a help so but you know we're learning so but it's something the characters go through as well. You know, there's that really powerful scene with Whiskey Jack and Anamander Rake where um, Anamander Rake is uh, killing these old women and, um, and, and Whiskey Jack is horrified by this. And they have this sort of confrontation. And then afterwards, Whiskey Jack realizes that Anamander Rake was making actually a, a, a kind of sacrifice in order to spare him the need to deal with this um so it's it's just really interesting how you have these moments where things flip and mm -hmm. these moments of recognition uh that's a, that's a definitely a hallmark of a malazan uh that you you get these sudden understandings these epiphanies which totally change your perspective mm -hmm. so that is uh you know definitely look at gruntle you know we haven't talked about gruntle yet uh and treach mm -hmm. and that whole thread in here uh, but his um, his arc in here is definitely one of resisting and and finally being swept along and this tide of, of war, which he's it's, it's he's an interesting character because in a way, I think there's sort of a pacifist uh, in there. Uh, but at the same time, he's a warrior, you know, clearly, and he doesn't want to go along with uh, the narrative that he's being swept into. He doesn't want to be the gods uh that whatever uh, mortal sword or whatever he doesn't want to have anything to do with it um and he resists that um so it's, it's really interesting to watch the characters deal with all these complexities too mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, Seth had a question. What faction would you would you join up with, and why would it be Mott and Regulars? <laughs> they would be fun to hang out with. Yeah. Oh, that one scene when um, Perrin and Quickben come through the table that's been propped up against the tree, and the guy says, "Yeah, I have one question." Or like, yeah, he's like, "Where where's this? That's a, a table, not a door." <laughs> <laughs> or he says, I'm confused about something. That's a table, not a door. I thought that was so funny. Yeah, I like uh, how Erickson, I mean, even though these books are on the darker side for sure, uh, he mixes in great uh, humor and, uh, you know, characters. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know if that was directed at you or me, Steve. I think it was, I think it was at me because I'm looking pretty patchy. <laughs> uh, by the way i love your movie borat <laughs> oh my god that's great you know but uh like lady envy i i i love her character i mean she's just just so ridiculous in times and you're just like you're like yeah this is exactly what the story needs someone just just be you know, flirting with talk as Tool and her people are just, you know, <laughs> destroying each other in the background. And yeah. I'm just like, yeah, I like that. I, I like that. That's good stuff. Or her throwing her tantrums. Oh, I love that. Yeah. You guys are so boring. <laughs> I need somebody to talk to. <laughs> How about the Segula? I mean, can you imagine oh, sending a, a three-person uh, punitive force I mean that that's that tells you something about the Sagula, doesn't it? Right, right. I want to know more about them. I hope we get to to explore uh, their their world a little you bit. You do do you do to some degree uh, in Malazan Book of the Fallen, but where you really get to see Sagula is in Ian Esselmont's novels of the Malazan Empire. Uh, much much more about them in there. Okay. And Stacy, I know you were going through a, like a reading slump. I'm surprised that this book was kind of something that helped you get out of it because I was I would expect the opposite. Um, well, I had I gave myself permission to just stop reading for a whole week, so um, I was reading too many things all at the same time. I had a bunch of uh, challenges that I had set for myself in the month of May, and it just really burned me out. And I stopped reading everything, including Memories of Ice. And I tried picking up other things, thinking, you know, oh, I need to read something different. And nothing really helped. And then I finally just forced myself to get back to this for the show. And after one chapter, that was it. I was, I just mm -hmm. kept devouring the pages and I had to mm -hmm. know what happened. Um, I didn't think I was going to finish by the show because I didn't pick it back up until uh, the week before. And I still had 400 and some of the pages to go, but it it yeah, felt like the last three. half of the book was so much um, faster paced mm -hmm. um, because I knew the character. So I no longer needed, you know, I knew who everybody was. I felt more confident about that. I understood what was happening or maybe I felt more confident to just let it go and not um, try and figure out everything. Um, Dead House Gates had the same issue. I was trying to you know, make sure I understood everything that was happening. And if I didn't, I would go back and reread. And, and by this is finally, at some point, I just said, I give up. I'm just going to read it to read it. And I enjoy it more when I do that. I just need to give myself permission to just enjoy it for a book. There's just so much going on here. 
and you know it and you want to know everything, but you can't because <laughs> you don't know what's relevant and what's just there. You know, I mean, there was one thing um, in Dead House Gates that I just thought was a moment. And it was when, um, uh, what's the, the Fenar's priest that got his hands cut off's name? Oh, um, Borak. Okay. When he finds the jade thing, okay, I knew there was something special about it, but I thought it didn't, I mean, it wasn't going to be anything outside of the, that. Well, and then in, in this book, you find out that that was the moment that Fenner got pulled out, and then you find out why. And it's like, these are, I didn't think I had to remember so much stuff from the last book <laughs> to keep up with what's happening here. Um, and I know some people might hear that who haven't read it and go, oh, well, this is not for me. Um, but I think this is one of those series you need to go into and just say, hey, I'm going to read it to read it, to enjoy it for the fiction it is. And then I'm going to reread it to enjoy all of these things that I'm missing. So I, I'm, I'm promise next book, I'm just going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> and they only get bigger. So you kind of have to say, I'm just going to read it. Otherwise, you'll never make it. And I, Steve, if you already struggled with this one, I'm, I feel sorry for you with the next one because I heard it's even more compli complicated. <laughs> maybe, I'll do, maybe I'll start the chapter a day. Uh, I'll start doing that. Actually, I think House of Chains is, is not more complicated. Uh, and somebody, I think um, it was Eric, made actually a nice suggestion. He's absolutely right that the first couple hundred pages are almost like a, a novella, a Malazan novella. Hmm. Uh, oh. You'll see what, what that means when you get there. <laughs> uh, and then the rest of the book widens out to something else. <laughs> but you'll see when you get there. But that might be an interesting point for you to uh, have hmm. a chat after reading those first couple hundred pages. You'll see exactly uh, what is meant by that when you get there. Um, you will you will be witness to that particular uh, <laughs> Joseph knows because I think you, you started reading that right yeah yeah I, I I'm not gonna lie though I don't remember too much about it okay <laughs> there's yeah. been so it's so much but yeah I got yeah I got probably that far in before I had to mm. switch over good yeah so but you know the witness reference anyway yeah mm. yeah but I don't think house of change is more complicated in fact having dead house gates under your belts, uh, and these, uh, you know, the, the, the Ganabakis books, right. And the seven cities book so far has been, uh, uh, dead house gates. Uh, you're going to be able to put things together. I think, uh, a, a little bit more easily, uh, in house of chains. Once you are be able to piece that first couple hundred pages in its proper place and how it relates to the rest. I think the rest is, is not that hard. Mm -hmm. Who on here is intrigued to read about this place where the human where the tal the talana mass are headed for the human that is destroying them like who who thought that a human or an army of humans could destroy the talana are we going to see that in the next book or is he going to make us wait <laughs> i think you're going to have to wait for that one uh, <laughs> What about you, Joseph? How did you, uh, was this a struggle for you to keep up with all the different characters and storylines? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
And it's because most, like, I, over this last, I want to say the last six months, I've been reading a lot more different things than I used, than I have been in the past. So a lot of the books I've read have been like first person. So bouncing back and forth and all this, it's hard to, uh, you know, remember everything. But um, I think the, like Stacey said, the second half of the book was a lot easier to grasp and remember and everything. And it moves. And I think every uh, Malazan book has been that way. The second half of the book moves a lot faster. I don't know why. I don't know if you're just getting used to the writing style or if it's purposely written that way that it kind of speeds up, but convergence. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it, Malazan's so it's, I mean, it's just, it is a complicated book. I mean, you know, uh, the more you read them, the better you, you know, I guess it's like anything in life, you know, the more you get into it, the better you get at it. So, and like Stacy said, you just got to, you know, you just got to do it. And then, it, you know, it'll get easier for, for you. Um, and they're really big books. So I think it's always like Layla has like her, her you know, giant <laughs> list of keeping everything straight. Um, <laughs> so good for you, um, man. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you know, it's not the, it's not the easiest thing to read, but it's really, uh, once you start grasping everything, and you get to, you know, be in this world that Erickson created. And that's one thing I will say, um, probably better than any author that I've ever read. It's like his world is just massive. Like it, it would just be, I mean, Phillips had a chance. It would be great to just sit down with Erickson and just like pick his brain, uh, you know, about all the stuff that he's made up and like how, how he comes up with these concepts. Yeah, it helped that he had a partner too. Of course, Ian Esselmont. They yeah. they game they gamed this world, uh, which is I think uh, one of the reasons why it's so rich, is they they gamed it and they lived it. They a lot of these characters they inhabited these characters, uh, so, which is why they have such great duos uh, in in the series. So yeah. Well, um, when can you start going into uh, Esselmont? You could read Night of Knives anytime you want because that takes place, for the most part, before the Malazan Book of the Fallen. So that's in the first book in novels of the Malazan Empire. Uh, but a lot of people just recommend reading in the books in publication order, which would mean reading Night of Knives. I think it's after book six of Malazan Book. Of yeah, Fallen. I think uh, I think I remember you saying like book six or something. But you honestly, you could read Night of Knives anytime. Uh, because it it does take place before and it would actually put a few things in place for you as well i think uh the rest of the esselmont books you should read in publication order if you want to do it chronologically um, and they do take place later than most of the malazan books although you you you'd sprinkle in a couple um before you get to the end of malazan book of the fallen but you'd end with uh with a sale would be the last book you'd read if you do it in, in order. <laughs> That's. <laughs> I, I see. Are you going to take that as a compliment? I'm not sure. I'll, I'll just, I'll just <laughs> you don't have a handkerchief on you, do you? 
I don't know. I need to have, yeah. I need okay. to pack one. Okay. Just Steve says the, the, the hammer is not going to get him. Yeah. Yeah. Bring the hammers. Hammers cannot take him down. So I, I did have a, it's kind of an off, kind of a weird question, but, um, you know, all the, the physical, the physical books are, I can only find mass market. Is there a reason these aren't available in trade? The publisher needs to publish them. That's, that's the reason. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I'm surprised too, because Tor usually publishes everything in, um, new books lately are in a mass or trade paperback. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's just because these are back. They probably already have so many of them they're trying to sell. I don't know, but yeah, it's frustrating. And they actually just changed all of the the covers too, Mm -hmm. um, to match the lighter books. So if you go back and look at used copies, they have a totally different cover for the mass market. So they, they put all this effort into, redoing the artwork but then print them on mass market it's very yeah. frustrating yeah, that, that's a perpetual frustration uh and i don't know why they aren't producing more of the trade paperbacks i really wish they would mm-hmm. is um is the fourth book is that the longest no no it's not um memories of ice is one of the longer in the earlier part of the series uh but when you get to books eight Nine, ten. You're you're hitting the longest of the series. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought they're they start to get to around what twelve hundred pages, something like that. Yeah, book four is actually shorter. I'm pretty sure than book three. And mm. uh, you you they start getting long, big again. <laughs> seven and then really eight, nine, ten. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, just read the subterranean press editions. Yeah. Okay. John is confirming. Told the hounds, which is book eight, has the longest page count. I mean, the oh. word count. Yeah. That's what really matters is the word count. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine those mass markets with like a 1400 page. I read um, Brandon Sanderson's uh, Words of Radiance in Mass Market, and it's like 1300 Ouch. pages. Ouch. <laughs> and then I bought all great. of the trade back paperback. That was it. I was done. I was like, I can't do this. And then trying to do it without breaking the spine. <laughs> Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, let's see. Um, I think Toll the Hounds has 1,290 in my mass market. Yeah. Mass market paperback. Yeah. Yikes. That was kind of strange. Um, yeah. So I was just thinking um, maybe we could even do like a each book instead of doing like a midway point, maybe like each book for whoever wants to come and kind of just do a catch up and then we could do a, a final um, big meetup at the end. But. Just an idea. Might be easier to follow along. Oh, Toll the Hounds has 392,000 words. Wow. That's a lot of words. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that that's a great idea, Steve. Mainly, I mean, because it'll help us keep up with what's Mm -hmm. happening, especially as they get longer. But also because I don't think one show is enough to discuss all the themes that Mm -hmm. we, I mean, we've only touch the surface on on some of the things that happen in Memories of Ice. So it would kind of be nice to be able to discuss everything and then to make our predictions about where it's going to go. That's always fun, too. Yeah, I think because it's if, for me, I, I felt a little like I was getting a little lost. But if we were if we would meet every every book or every so often, then it'd be easier for all of us to kind of, you know, feel like we're 
in tune with what's going on. So mm -hmm. cool. I know that everyone's busy and we ha everyone has a full day today, so I'll let everybody go. <laughs> but uh, Layla, you want to just tell us where people can find you? Um, I have mostly on Twitter at the moment. I'm revising my website. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, and I have, uh, you know, different um, articles out there. Just uh, just uh, wrote an article on a um, conference I attended virtually that was held in uh, the Gulf, but it was uh, Islamic Perspectives on Extraterrestrial Life, which I thought is a... Um, really a great thing for many reasons, but um, if you are interested in science fiction, you know, there's kind of a kind of a connection to just where do we go next? And um, so, you know, yeah, so that's out there on Patheos. Cool. Yeah, that sounds really great. Fun and stuff. Joseph, Joseph, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh facebook uh my youtube channel we're doing a dresden files discussion here in about an hour so if you all want to hop over there if you've uh, read the first three books um you can find me on amazon uh just released book two in the more than human universe more than a gunslinger so if you like strong female characters in the wild west and fantasy it's fun it's a fun ride nice. And Philip? Yeah, uh, mostly you'd find me here on YouTube. Uh, Philip Chase is the channel, and I do putter around on Twitter a bit, <laughs> uh, mostly in a parasitic fashion. Uh, I just sort of retweet things. <laughs> but but I'm there. Uh, you'd find me, Philip Chase 90 on Twitter as well. But uh, yeah, I also want to thank you, Steve, for being an awesome host and all-around yeah. great guy. Uh, and thank my, my fellow uh, panelists here. You're all wonderful people. And I really enjoy hearing your Malazan thoughts. So thank you all. Thank you, Philip. I appreciate you being here. Um, I just have one thing before we wrap up. Mm -hmm. So you guys can find me on YouTube and Twitter and Instagram, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what's important. <laughs> is how many times did you guys laugh when Bouchelaine and his friend, I can't think of his name, kept getting punched brooch. in the face? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if um, if Isoma and, and Erickson played those characters and there's some inside joke there that we should know about. <laughs> Loads of them. Uh, <laughs> if you like that, you can read the Bokelane and Corbel Brooch novellas. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Um, lots of that absurdist humor in there. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, thanks everybody again for coming by to interact with us. And thanks, of course, all the panelists. It's been uh Without, without all of you, I, I would be totally lost. So thank you all for taking the time to, to chat. And then we'll, we'll be in touch about uh, whoever wants to meet each book uh, or if you just want to come to the last one, it's, it's up to you. So no pressure as always. So thanks, everybody. Have a good Sunday. Thank all you. Right. Bye, Steve. Thank you.